I'm going to focus your attention this morning on Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Uh, this is part 10 in a series that I've entitled Irreligious. We've been making our way through various stories, parables, and episodes in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've been seeing how Jesus distinguishes Christianity from religion. I began this series by saying that the word irreligious literally means hostile to religion. And then I told you that no one was more hostile toward religion than Jesus, believe it or not. Um, in fact, what we've seen week after week is that no one battled religion more than Jesus did. And he does that again here in Luke chapter 10, verses 28, 25 to 37. It's the very famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Beginning in verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. <laughs> Lawyers, you know. <laughs> Jeez. And he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, then you go and do likewise. Let me pray for us. God, nothing of real value will happen here this morning unless... You are the primary teacher, the primary preacher. And so I pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would give us minds that understand and hearts that receive your truth, which alone can set us free. We pray ultimately that you fix our gaze on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I've said week after week that religion, as surprising as this may sound, is actually not about God. It's about me. It's about me getting better. It's about me doing the right thing. It's about me being a good person. It's about my behavior, my obedience, my faithfulness, and so on and so forth. And because of this, 
Religion actually breeds something really destructive. It breeds narcissism because it's constantly pushing you to think about yourself. How am I doing? Am I growing? Am I loving enough? Am I nice enough? Am I strong enough? Am I serving enough? Am I working hard enough? The truth of the matter is religion causes us to spend way too much time thinking about ourselves. And we justify this because we think this is what God wants us to be doing. We think God wants us to be growing, and the only way that we'll grow is if we're constantly thinking about our performance, if we're constantly dissecting what we're doing and evaluating our motives and so on and so forth. We're constantly thinking about this stuff. And in reality, it actually breeds a spiritualized form of navel-gazing, where rather than fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, We're fixing our eyes on ourselves, which is why I've said week after week that um, there are a lot of churches and a lot of messaging that comes from the Christian community that is perhaps not intended to be this, but it is this, very religious because it's all about me. It almost causes us to believe that the focus of the Christian faith is the life of the Christian. It's all about me and how I'm doing and whether I'm doing enough and all of those sorts of things. And so you'll hear sermon after sermon about the various ways we can love God better, the various ways we can serve better, the various ways we can do more and try harder and all of that stuff. But what makes the gospel good news is that it's not about me. It's about Jesus. What makes the gospel good news is that it's not about me and my work. It's about God and his work in the person of Jesus for me. And there may be no story in the Bible that has been interpreted more religiously than the story of the Good Samaritan. After the parable of the prodigal son, which we looked at a few weeks ago, this parable is probably the best known story Jesus told. Even people who didn't grow up anywhere near the church have heard of the Good Samaritan. They've heard some sort of exhortation to be like the Good Samaritan. Um, But even though this is probably the best-known story Jesus ever told after the parable of the prodigal son, it's also, in my opinion, the most misunderstood. I learned a song in Sunday school growing up uh, about the Good Samaritan, and it went like this. The man who stopped to help, right when he saw the need, he was such a good neighbor, a good example for me. Okay, now on the surface, that song may seem harmless. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with teaching children to sing a song about loving the people around them, serving the people around them, helping the people around them in need? But it exposes unfortunately, that we treat this parable like we treat the rest of the Bible, as if it is fundamentally about us and what we should do. That's the way we typically read the whole Bible. If we spend any time reading the Bible, we almost see it unconsciously or consciously perhaps as a sort of heaven-sent self-help manual, Uh, a book that gives us God's checklists so that if we can just simply check the boxes, we can have our best life now, here and now. Um, And that song, that little children's song, exposes the fact that we 
treat this parable the way we treat the rest of the Bible, as if it's fundamentally about us and what we should do. But to conclude, and listen carefully, to conclude that the point of this story is to emulate the hero of this story is to read it religiously. And that's precisely the way most people have been taught to understand it. You know the story. I just read it. A man is walking down the road when he's mugged and left for dead. And as he lies there dying in the ditch, two religious leaders, first one, then another, see the man, but they pass by on the other side of the street. They don't want to get their hands dirty. They're busy. They see it, but they ignore it, and they kind of pass by. And a little while later, a Samaritan, a hated half-breed in those days, walks by, and he sees the man, and he comes to his aid and cares for the man. Now, just little bunny trail here, to make a Samaritan the hero of this story, for Jesus to make a Samaritan the hero of this story is an insult to Jesus's Jewish audience because according to them, there were no good Samaritans. Okay, I mentioned this last week or the week before, I can't remember, but I mentioned that Samaritans were hated because they were half Jewish, half Gentile. They were the result of mixed breeding in the minds of the Jewish people of their day. Uh, And so they were hated. They they were, my granddad tells a story one time about, it's not true, I don't think, but he used it as an illustration about the guy who tried to remain neutral during the Civil War, so he wore a red shirt and gray pants and he got shot at from both sides. Well, (laughs) it's the danger of trying to remain neutral sometimes. Um, But... That's kind of what the the Samaritans got shot at from both sides. They weren't all one or all the other. And so the fact that Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of this story alerts us that he wants to flip the script on how we read this thing. Okay, that that should be the first clue that Jesus wants to do something very counterintuitive here. He wants to flip the script here. So this Samaritan puts the man on his donkey takes him to a nearby hotel, pays the manager to take care of him, and promises to come back and pay him for any additional additional costs that the innkeeper incurs. And you also know the common interpretation. Don't be like the priest and the Levite who were so bound up and busy with their religious cleanliness. uh, They were too concerned with themselves to help this poor guy. Don't be like them. Be like the good Samaritan. Be a good neighbor. We read that story and think that the whole point of it is to inspire us to be like the Good Samaritan. But it's not. Jesus wants us to be identified with the traveler who is dying in a ditch, in desperate need of help. He doesn't want us to read this story and identify with the Good Samaritan. That's the one person in the story Jesus does not want us to identify with. We'll see that. In a minute. Um, Jesus wants us to see that this beat up, bruised, left for dead man, that his predicament is our predicament. But in order to see this, we have to look at the context. And we read it when I read the whole passage a little bit ago. We have to look at the reason why Jesus tells this story. Why does he even tell this story? What's the purpose? What's the, what's the setting? What's the context in which Jesus tells this story? Um, Well, uh, I just read it. Jesus tells the story to answer a question from a lawyer about what he must do to inherit eternal life. 
That's the whole reason Jesus tells this story. The whole reason Jesus tells this story is because this guy, this religious leader, this lawyer, this uh, teacher of the law comes to Jesus, and it tells us straight up that he comes to him and wants to test Jesus. The religious leaders were always trying to trip him up. They were always trying to expose him for being a fraud in some way, shape, or form. And so the religious leader comes to Jesus and thinking he's smart and crafty, tries to trick Jesus, uh, and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, just follow all of God's law. That's all you got to do. I mean, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and all your strength and your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. But verse 29 gives us insight into what's really going on in the heart of this lawyer. It says, he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, who is my neighbor? Notice he completely ignores the whole love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Like, he, he ignores that. Uh, the lawyer does. Like, I got that one. I, I got that covered. Let me try to trip you up even further, Jesus. Good answer on question number one. Let me ask you a question, a second question. And who is my neighbor? Probably very pompously, thinking that he was going to trick him. Um, and Jesus answers him by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we miss the point. So, um, when he says, when verse 29 exposes the motive by which this lawyer is asking this question, it says he wanted to justify himself. The whole reason he approached Jesus and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? was for the purpose of justifying himself. Now, when the Bible uses the word justify or justification, it almost always uses it in reference to how one gets right with God. Okay, that's in almost every case, when the Bible uses the word justify or justification, it's always speaking to how one gets right with God. And there are only two options to choose from when it comes to how justification happens. One, we justify ourselves, or two, God justifies us. It's the only two options there are. Either we make ourselves right with God by doing all the right things in the right way, or... God makes us right with God through Jesus who did all the right things in the right way for us. It's the only two options, okay? So if Jesus had been asked, how should we treat other people? If that was the question, then be like the good Samaritan would be an acceptable interpretation. But that's not what he was asked. If he was asked, um, hey, Jesus, how, what does it look like to love my neighbor? What, is it, what does it look like, um, you know, to, how, how should we treat other people? And if Jesus said, I'm going to tell you a story, and be, I want you to be like this guy, okay? Then be like the good Samaritan would be an acceptable interpretation. I mean, after all, we should be kind and generous to others. We should care for the hurting. We shouldn't avoid people when they are messy. Uh, we should discomfort ourselves to help others. But Jesus wasn't asked, how should we treat others? He was asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So 
He was asked a question, in other words, about a person's relationship to God, not a question about a person's relationship to another person. So to interpret this parable horizontally as if it applies to the way you and I treat each other is to interpret it wrongly. He was asked a vertical question. And so Jesus answers it vertically. Um, Now what Jesus is saying is that if you want to take on the task, the daunting task of making yourself right with God, here's all you got to do. Just keep God's law perfectly. That's all you got to do, okay? Uh, Which includes loving your neighbor as yourself. This is what he's trying to do. This guy asks the question pompously, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The arrogance behind the question alone. And Jesus does what he typically does. Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the rich young ruler. He asked a similar question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes through the Ten Commandments. And the guy says, well, I mean, I've done that. (laughs) Give me something else. Give me something a little bit more challenging, okay? Well, that's similarly what's going on here. This man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, and Jesus says, well, that's, that's simple. That's not terribly complicated. The Old Testament's actually very clear about this. Just keep God's law perfectly. Perfectly. Everything God tells us to do, do it flawlessly and you will inherit for yourself eternal life, okay? You will, you will get it. You will earn it. Now, there's a little caveat here. We typically lower the bar of God's demands so that it simply means try hard. Do your best. I mean, you know, you, you don't have to take it the length of the field. Just get us in the red zone. God will do the rest, okay? We tend to minimize it a little bit. But Jesus never sweeps God's demands under the rug or simplify, or he simplifies them, but he doesn't minimize them. He doesn't lower the bar. In fact, he summarizes it in the Sermon on the Mount by saying, be perfect as God in heaven is perfect. So there's no wiggle room here. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, lawyer, you must love others perfectly and sacrificially and selflessly, not just on the outside, but on the inside too. In other words, in your heart, you must always want to love people sacrificially and selflessly and perfectly. The lack of want, even if you do it on the outside, the lack of want is falling woefully short of God's demands. Okay, so he's like, you know, leveling this guy. And then he's basically saying, don't hurt anyone ever, ever. You can never hurt anyone physically, emotionally, relationally, verbally. You must always help everyone physically, emotionally, relationally. So it's not just committing a sin that you can't do. Like, I, I did something I shouldn't. You, but you, also there are sins of omission, failing to do what we ought to do. Okay? The old theologians used to refer to sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are those things we do that we shouldn't. Sins of omission are those things that we should do that we don't do. Okay, we're guilty of that too. So even if you did everything right on the outside, there's a thousand things going on around you every day that you're overlooking. You're not seeing that you ought to be doing also. Um, you must never, ever harbor grudges. Never. You must never seek retribution, ever. In fact, you're guilty even if you want to seek retribution, even though you don't. 
I really want to hurt that person, but I'm not going to do it. Well, you're still guilty because you wanted to, okay? That's the point. Um, you must put others before yourself all the time. In fact, it's never, ever okay to put yourself before anyone ever, ever. And you must do these things because you want to do them, not because you have to do them. Your love for others must be perfectly selfless all the time. So, Jesus says, then just go do that, and you will inherit for yourself eternal life, okay? Um, so, when Jesus says, go and do likewise at the end, it's not an exhortation to be nice to people and to help those in need. It's an exhortation to be perfect. God only accepts perfection, it's the only thing he accepts. It's the only thing he approves. And because you and I are imperfect, in and of ourselves, we will never be approved by God, ever. We need, like this man lying in the ditch needed, an outside rescuer. Um, when Jesus says, go and do likewise, it's a tongue-in-cheek way for Jesus to put this law lover and us in his place for assuming that there is anything that he can do to earn God's love. What can you do to inherit eternal life? What can you do to earn God's acceptance and approval and love? What, are you kidding me? So far from telling the story to help us become like the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells this story to show us how far from being like the Good Samaritan we actually are. And how much every one of us needs the Good Samaritan. So this parable is intended to destroy any notion that we can do something to get God's approval, that we can work our way into God's favor, that we can inherit eternal life by what we do. So Jesus is again distinguishing religion from Christianity. And he's always doing so to the religious leaders, always. He's always showing them that they have it backwards. Remember, I think it was week two when we looked at the prostitute who barged into the dinner party filled with religious people where Jesus was. And she falls on her face and she begins washing Jesus' feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair. And the religious leaders are sitting around the table, and they're just aghast, disgusted. Well, this proves Jesus is a fraud because no self-respecting man of God would ever allow a woman like this of such filth to touch him. And Jesus essentially responds and says, you have it backwards, man. You think she needs to become more like you, but I tell you, you actually need to become more like her. He's constantly flipping the script, constantly reminding people who think they've earned God's love that they haven't, and more importantly, that they can't. So Jesus actually intends this parable, believe it or not, to leave us beaten and bloodied and lying in a ditch like the man in the story. The story itself is supposed to make us feel as desperate as the man lying in the ditch in need of outside help. 
The reason Jesus tells this parable to this lawyer is because he wants the lawyer to know just how helpless he actually is and that there's nothing he can do to inherit eternal life. That he can't pull himself up by his bootstraps. He can't get sober and get God's love. He can't do enough of the right things or go to the right places or serve the right people and somehow garner God's attention. He can't do it. So he tells this story because he wants this guy and us to feel as helpless as the guy lying in the ditch. We can't do it. Um... He wants us to feel helpless and in need of a rescuer. This parable is intended to expose the fact that we are the broken people, beaten up by life, robbed of hope. We are this guy. We're the ones. We don't have a chance unless someone comes to save us. And the good news of the gospel is that someone has. Robert Capon puts it this way. He, Jesus, comes to us in the brokenness of our health, in the shipwreck of our family lives, in the loss of all peace of mind, in the very thick of our sins. He saves us in our disasters, not from them. He mercifully meets us all at our deepest point of need. You see, unlike the priest and the Levite, Jesus doesn't avoid us. You know, we've talked about this before, but... Religion doesn't know what to do with messy stuff. It doesn't. So it just kicks it out. It doesn't know what to do with sin. And so it just pushes it out the back door and forces everybody, consciously or unconsciously, to pretend that they're not in need. I mean, a religious system doesn't know what to do with bad stuff. Um... It avoids us, but unlike the priest and Levite, Jesus doesn't avoid us. He crosses the street from heaven to earth, and he comes into our mess, and he gets his hands dirty. And unlike religious love, God's love never runs or wavers. It extends into all of those places where you cannot imagine he would want to go. So those parts of you that cause others to run away are the very parts that God runs towards. You know, when I was thinking last night about uh, where is it in the Bible, there are plenty of places, but where in the Bible is it most explicit that God gravitates toward badness and need? We don't think that's true about God. God gravitates toward goodness and strength. The better we are, the stronger we are, the wiser we are, the more God will love us. But where is it in the Bible? What is the summit, the peak in the Bible where God demonstrates that he gravitates toward sin and brokenness and weakness? Christmas time, the incarnation. I mean, there are plenty of places in the Bible, but I mean, the incarnation is a perfect place to look. You don't have to look any further to see that God came into this world. The God who spoke all things into existence, all things, took on human flesh. He took on human frailties. He took on human limitations and became one of us. He got his hands dirty. 
He came into our mess with his amazing mercy. He came to us, not because we were good. He came to us because we were bad. He didn't come to us in spite of our sin. He came to us because of it. It's the exact opposite of religion. Exact opposite. Religion's all about getting you clean. And Christianity is all about Jesus dying for the dirty, which we all are. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is a mind-blowing verse. What it's saying, it's not that Jesus died for sinners. What that verse is saying is Jesus died as a sinner. He who knew no sin became sin. So he didn't just die for murderers. He died as a murderer. He didn't just die for adulterers. He died as an adulterer. He took on himself all of our guilt. Why? Well, this verse tells us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This glorious exchange which takes place at the cross where Jesus takes on himself all of our dirtiness and we take on all of his cleanliness. How and why are we acceptable before God? Because we have been clothed in an irremovable suit of righteousness. Not of our own making. Our fig leaves didn't get us very far. And they still don't. The only thing that grants us access to God so that we can literally call him Abba, Father, is the person and work of Jesus. I shared this story with the guys um, maybe two weeks ago on Wednesday night, and I may have shared it here at some point. It's a story I've told a lot of times, but years ago, maybe I told it on a Sunday morning. If I did, forgive me, but it's worth hearing again. It's worth me thinking about again. Um, Years ago, I was putting Jenna, my daughter, to bed, and I just happened to ask her. I would always pray with her and read her a Bible story, and we'd talk about stuff like that before bed. And I asked her, she may have been like nine or 10 years old at the time. And I just asked her, I said, honey, how do you think God feels about you? And she looked at me and said, disappointed. And so I pressed a little bit because I thought maybe she had done something wrong that day and the Holy Spirit was convicting her. So I didn't want to let her off the hook that quickly. So I was like, well, I mean, did something happen? She's like, no, no. And I kind of pressed and it became obvious that that wasn't why she said that. And I said, disappointed. And she said, yeah. I said, why? And she said something like this. Well, because God is perfect and I'm imperfect. God is sinless. I'm a sinner. So it just stands to reason that he would be disappointed in me. I don't, I mean, I just, I don't match up. And I said, let me, let me give you a little illustration. It came to my mind. I said, let's just say that some stranger was walking down the street around dinner time and walked up the driveway and through the front door and walked into the kitchen where your mother was cooking dinner and said to your mother, um, hey, what's for dinner? Your mom would probably say something like this. Listen, I don't know who you are. I don't know how you got in here. But if you don't leave immediately, I'm going to call the police. Now, flip it. 
What if that same person walked down the street around dinner time with your brother Gabe and walked up the driveway with your brother Gabe and walked through the front door and into the kitchen with your brother Gabe and Gabe put his arm around this particular stranger and said, hey mom, this is so-and-so, what are we having for dinner? Your mom would treat him like a son. Why? Because he came with Gabe. I said, honey, when you come to God with Jesus, he can't be disappointed with you. To be disappointed with you would be to be disappointed with Jesus. And after Jesus' baptism, when he comes out of the water, remember what God says from on high, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Therefore, if you are in Christ, covered in his righteousness, God is pleased with you, not because of what you do or don't do or the amount of rules you keep or the amount of rules you break, but because of what Jesus has done for you. So we're not saved apart from the law. We're saved in Jesus who perfectly kept the law for us, okay? So um, the good Samaritan single-handedly brought the beat-up man to the innkeeper and paid the total cost of his care. Well, who does that remind you of? I mean, Jesus, at great cost to himself on the cross, paid the full price to heal our wounds and to cover our nakedness. Jesus brings us single-handedly to the Father and promises that his payment is not simply a one-time gift. Rather, the price also covers the charges that we continue to incur all the time. So it's not good enough. You know, it's, um, someone gave this illustration to me a long time ago that justification is not simply just as if I'd never sinned. That's the way I was taught it growing up, and that's true. The word justification simply means, in terms of the way God looks at us, just as if I'd never sinned, but it's even better than that. It's not just as if I'd never sinned only. It's also just as if I'd always obeyed. So think about this. You walk into, the, you walk into a courtroom and you owe $10 million. You can't pay it. No matter how hard you work, you cannot pay that debt. Some of you can, and if you can, we need you to tithe. But most of you can't pay that, okay? Um, so most of you can't pay that. I can't pay that. Um, and if the judge says, you know what, I'm forgiving this debt full and free. I mean, you'd walk out of there going, praise God. But that doesn't protect you from incurring more debt. Whatever got you into that jam to owe $10 million will most likely get you into another jam where you'll incur a debt you can't pay either. Here, in this case, Jesus not only pays our debt, but he makes a $50 trillion deposit that will cover everything we do wrong from this point until the day we die. Everything. When he died on the cross, he didn't simply die for our past sins and our present sins, but our future sins too. He covered it all. And so just like the good Samaritan who tells the innkeeper, listen, here's, here's I'm, I'm paying the cost for you to care for him. And if in your care you end up spending more than what I've given you, I'll, I'll come back and pay you more also. Whatever charges you incur, put it on my tab, he says. 
Well, Jesus says the same thing. And notice the good Samaritan wanted nothing in return. It wasn't like he said, I'm going to get this guy healed, and then he's going to become my slave. Okay? I mean, he wanted nothing in return. His love was one way. Jesus also loves us with a you-don't-have-to-pay-me-back kind of love. Same thing. He loves us because he loves us. God loves us not because we are good. God loves us because he is good. And that's the difference between Christianity and religion. So Jesus and Jesus alone is the Good Samaritan. Let's pray together.